Hey, good evening, everybody. Uh, hey, listen, I want to do something really quick. Um, this can always get a little weird, but I wanted, I wanted to, to name, we have a celebrity in our house tonight, and, and I don't do so because having celebrities with us makes us better than anybody. That's not my point, Rachel. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not what I'm getting after here. At the same time, I know Rachel's going to be thinking the whole time, like, can I get a picture with them afterwards, unless I do name it for what it is. And so, friends, I want you to be aware of so we can just move along, distraction-free. That's night in the house. We have the greatest school nurse in the history of modern education. Can you just give a rousing applause for Annie LB? Huh? Making sure 1,500 kids every day between elementary and high school are nice and fun. Annie, how do you do it? What's your secret? Tell us. You're amazing. Congratulations. That is quite the honor. That's awesome. We're proud of you. <laughs> I also want to acknowledge somebody who's not here tonight real quick. Uh, Debbie Manning called in a couple hours ago sick. And um, her voice, had you heard it, is like just raspy. Like you can hear the canker sores bursting on the other end. That's a disgusting image that I just gave you. Forgive me. But pus just leaking it. And I just, <laughs> okay. But I was thinking about Debbie in just, um, I had uh, read somewhere earlier this week that pastoral care people or people who, who do the sort of work that Debbie does showing up at hospitals and late nights with people in our community and stretching herself thin, on average, they put in over 288 hours a year in just the visits with people in need. I just want to remind us, as I think about her absence, I want us to think about the gift that her presence is, is that she is somebody who has invested so deeply into our community and we're just grateful for that. Can I tell you a story now about, can I make it about me? Okay, thanks. Yeah, I always do. Okay, <laughs> thanks. It's our pastor. A couple weeks ago, um, I was at my house in our office in the basement, and I had um, CNN breaking news come up on my phone. Surprise, surprise. And on it, it said, new Netflix show, people are passing out because it's so scary. And so naturally, I thought, I need to see what the fuss is all about. <laughs> sort of. And so later that night, I wanted to watch this show. I can't even tell you the name of it. House on Haunted Hill or something like that. Okay, big fans back there. All right. Pray for them in the corner. So I'm sitting up, and here's what I did. I'm not, I'm not above telling you this. I wanted to see what the fuss was all about, but I didn't want to take it on, you know, at the risk of it taking me out. And so I put it on my computer, and I set it down, and I sat up in my bed while my pregnant wife slept next to me, and I looked straight ahead while the show was playing to the side right there. And I feel like I had a pretty good grasp on what was happening by and large. I mean, it's kind of your basic horror story. But then it got to this point where all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there were ghosts in this one scene. You guys know what I'm talking about. Where they start banging on all of the walls. Like just going crazy. I don't know. Wh why do you ghosts bang on walls? I do not know. We ask people to rest in peace, and some people just don't oblige. And so these ghosts were banging on all of these walls. And... Um, I'm not making this up. You're going to call me a liar, but I'm, I'm telling you the truth. As this scene is unfolding, banging on the walls down in my basement, downstairs, beneath us, like a huge bang and then a rattling all around. So loud, in fact, that it woke my wife up, who was deep in a, a heavy slumber there. I mean, not directly, but when I woke her up to go and check out what was <laughs> happening, essentially, 
the banging of the walls, it woke Lauren up. And so Lauren, um, I don't know, she wasn't like warm initially. She said something like, be a man. <laughs> and I said, you need to take your toxic masculinity. <laughs> and you can imagine that didn't go over well. But Lauren ended up going down there and scoping out the scene. And um, she came back to report that there was nothing to be seen. Like there was no objects that were out of place. There was n the banging wasn't happening. And so now she's just looking at me like I'm the boy who cried wolf. There's nothing to see. So as she is bearing herself back into bed and about to fall asleep again, banging on the walls. Like just thud, 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 and like scratches and, and noises, okay? So now I'm like, I got to do something. So I wake Lauren up again. But I did go down. I said, Lauren, where is your pepper spray? Lauren goes and fetches her pepper spray. I don't know why I think pepper spray is like some threat to a ghost. But that's what's going on in my head right now. That gives you the state of stability that I was in. So I go down. I get the pepper spray. I'm walking down the stairs. And I'm creeping like step by step real slowly. Finger on the trigger. Like about to blow away whatever comes forth. Where I get to the bottom step. And I hear this noise around the corner. So my fingers. It's like that, shaking, like always, but still, like, ready to fire. It's my five-year-old son standing on the other side of the door, crying because his Thomas trains fell off the top bunk of his bed and took the caboose down with it, hit the floor multiple times, and so he's weeping. And now he's crying even more because I'm pepper spraying him, and he just doesn't know why it's happening. <laughs> I tell you that story, though, because... Um, <laughs> When we, when we kind of like reassembled our reality and put the pieces back together and turned that terrible show off, when I got back into bed and I was um, calming down again, I, um, I realized how surprised I was. Not, not by the fact that that was my son, um, but more so by the fact that I wished it wasn't. Now hear me out. It's not like I don't love my kid. I was just really hoping that he was maybe Casper or something along those lines. I was wanting something climactic, catalytic, critical to happen in those moments. Something that would change how I see things from here on out. That's my why. I know it's weird, but that's my why. Let me break it down further and say this, is that I've had these, I went through this season in the summertime where I was really feeling like, man, the monotonous day in, day out can be a little bit of a grind. Do you know what I'm saying? The wake up. The go to sleep, the drop kids off at school, the pick kids up from school, have lunch in the community, have dinner with family. And when you run into this routine and your routine brings you into all the same old, same old, or so it feels, eventually you find yourself just longing for some sense of critical mass to collide with your common mundane reality. And you're looking at me like I'm strange, but I think you know what I'm talking about. In fact, I think that's why last weekend when we were remembering Chris's life when we showed up at a funeral, that's why you didn't wear flip-flops when you walked in. When we were baptizing baby Andrew up here on the stage, that's why maybe Maggie wasn't checking Twitter on her phone. When you're going through Yellowstone, you don't litter. When you're at Auschwitz, you don't smile in photos. We have this sense that in our lives... We want a hallowing to happen. We want something to remind us that these days, these moments that we have, these precious few experiences, they are sacred, they are set apart, and we need a reason to live in reverence. And so we show up to those places that have been predetermined and pre-selected to be reverent and holy spaces, 
and we hope that the hallowing that has happened there will also happen in us. I don't think that's a bad thing, but it's a problem. Because by and large, in our longing for the critical to turn over our common day-in, day-out grind, that often doesn't happen on our terms. I mean, as we know, especially in this community right now, um, we think about how we're gathering here tonight on the 310th day of the year, on a week that has witnessed the 307th mass shooting of the year on a week where we heard the screams of partisan politics at its highest peak, in a week where we're still grieving a close friend, we know that the hallowing of our lives, it doesn't happen on our own terms. We don't get to seek out the interruptions that we long for. They tend to sabotage us. We don't get to go out and find the ghosts. They tend to find us first, and they blindside us. I mean, I'm thinking about this room and the faces that I've already seen in here, and I'm thinking that there's been a lot of blindsiding moments in this room in the past year, in the past few years. Blindsiding moments where spouses have seen bags by the door and wedding rings on the dresser. Blindsiding moments where doctors have called with news that you didn't even know that you should be afraid of. Blindsiding moments where we watch painful stories in our city, and we're close enough where we notice that we ourselves are bleeding. Blindsiding moments where friends go off for bike rides, and they don't make it back home. And so the question I want to ask then, I suppose, is just what do we do when the blindside happens? When we take on the breaks and the bruises and the blood starts to flow, what is our response to this sort of thing? Obviously, uh, where we've been the last few weeks trying to take our first steps forward in the absence of Chris Nielsen no longer being here with us. We've been thinking a lot about Chris. We've been thinking a lot about his life. And there is this sense where how do we now move on? And I hate those words. Move on. Linguistically, I hate those words because it implies that because pain has entered into our life, somehow our lives got turned off, and all we have to do is flip a switch, put the pieces back together again, and we go on our merry way. I hate that because I want the hallowing to happen. I want us to be marked by the moment that we're in. The flipping of the switch, the putting the pieces back together again, that is the language of repair, but I'm interested in replacement. That is the language of resuscitation, but we are people of resurrection. And so how do we go through this thing in the intensification of life, in a marking moment, and actually allow our lives to be marked by it? Because I don't want to return to another hollow life. I really do want to be hollowed out. I want to be marked by the mess and the pain. I don't want to just get better. I also want to get bigger. I don't want to just move on. I want to figure out how collectively we can all move forward. Which leads me to wonder, and I want to say this carefully, but it's just something that I've been, you know, journaling about. My dear diary moments. I don't know why I thought that was funny. I journal. Is that all right, Tay? I journal. One of the questions that I've been asking a lot, though, is inside of all of the wounds that we collect in our days, could the pain that has pierced 
our lives also be pain that produces something new in our lives? Could the deficit that we have experienced also be a deposit? As a people who gather weekly underneath the cross above us, we would adamantly say, of course, yes, but we would also ask, but how? How does that actually work? How does that actually play when you talk about resurrection, not in theoretical ways, but actually in real life, flesh and blood ways? Does that not feel like that's what suffering, death, pain does? It makes you realize that you're no longer playing with Monopoly money. Like things matter. Like you got skin in the game. I'm telling you guys, I approached the, the scripture, this church service, singing along to that last song there in a completely different way than I did a month ago. And I can't explain how it is still. It's still too soon to do so. But it's something along the lines of going from this is what we're supposed to say, this is how our faith has formed us, to like I really hope this is true. I really want this to be true. I need this to be true. I need this to be true. We claim that we are our people who have a story that centers upon the death and the resurrection of a man. So how do we access that in our stories here today? I want us to enter into Easter just a little bit earlier than we typically do tonight. And I want us to go back to that scene in Mark 16. Because um, I think the women who show up at the, the grave in the midst of their own sabotage, where they're stumbling and survival is not a certain thing, they give us some ideas as to how we best can move forward knowing that we'll never actually move on. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to go to Mark 16. And the text reads like this. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, they bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Let's just be clear about what's happening here. These women who are showing up on Easter morning, they're not living in denial. They're in devastation. They're not showing up with um, bright balloons or candy to welcome back the resurrected Christ. They are bringing spices to anoint the dead body of their friend, Jesus. That's what they're doing. With tears streaking down their cheeks, with swollen eyes, and with pockets filled with perfume. At some point, the text doesn't tell us one but one of the Marys called the other Mary and said that his life was far too lovely for his death to stink. And so you and I were going to get up the next morning and do something about it. And here they are. They're showing up to intervene on behalf of their friend, to remember the one that they loved. I heard one writer say that every lament is a love song, which is a beautiful thought. Our tears are the testimony to the existential value of the life that was lost past two weeks, again, as I've said, that's what we've tried to do together, is we've tried to show up with spices and perfume and remember our friend Chris, as, as, long, as well as all the other wounds that we collect and carry and bring into this wound together. But these women are not expecting Easter Sunday to provide an empty tomb. They're going to anoint the friend that they lost. And as they stumble towards the tomb, in the wake of their lives being completely sabotaged by pain piercing them to the core, they realize that they have a little bit of a problem. One of the women turns to the other women and says, hey, uh, when we get there, we can't do what we need to do in order for us to do what we came here to do. Because, yes, we have spices, but there is still a stone. How are we going to roll that stone away? 
There's something about that line this morning um, that was jolting to me. I've been studying Luke 3 actually all week. Woke up and read this, and this was where we are now. And it's a lot to do with that line, and I don't even know why. But it, there's a resonance inside of it. Because I don't know if this feels familiar to any of you, but showing up at church tonight, carrying whatever wounds, whatever burdens you might be carrying with you, did any part of you on the way in just think that I know that this is where I'm supposed to be? I know that this is uh, what I want to do, but I just don't see how this is going to get me where I need to go. I I don't see how it's ultimately going to fix. It's not going to bring somebody back. It's not going to make the pain stop. It's not going to provide a solution that I can't find elsewhere. So why am I showing up with spices if that stone has yet to roll away? How many times have we carried spices, got halfway there, thought about the stone, and turned back around? We started walking and got stuck on stone staring. And we go back to the dark places like Peter and the other men in the story who are not present in the text just did. We already ventured out and were vulnerable, got wounded along the way. There's no way we're going to do that again. So we button down the hatch and we turn around, not realizing that God's already working on what we've been worried about. The stone that we did not know how to lift, remove, it's already starting to roll. And so the women keep walking with their spices. They don't have any answers on how it's all going to get better, how the burden's suddenly going to get lighter, how the heaviness is going to go away. They don't know any of that. They don't know how this is all going to play out, but they decide that the most faithful thing they can do right now is continue to show up with what they have, with who they're with, with where they are. Man, there's power in that, isn't there? The women keep walking with their spices, and they find out that God's been working on the stone. There's an angel who's sitting on top of the stone, and the angel says to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen and he is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. There you will see him just as he told you. How do we move forward knowing that we do not move on? How do we keep showing up with our spices? How do we take the next right step? There is a prescription for us in all of our pain inside of what the angel is saying to these women right here. It's a few short words. But the angel sees these women, wounds and all, sees them sitting in their place of pain, devastated, stumbling after their lives have been completely sabotaged. And the angel says one word twice. You see what that word is? See. First time the angel says, you need to see the place where they laid him. My second oldest, Sawyer, he's three years old, preschool. I had parent-teaching conferences this past week. And uh, the teacher told Lauren there that Sawyer struggles. Well, she didn't use that language, did she? She said Sawyer is terrible at (laughs) using She said, Sawyer struggles with past tense grammar. And I thought, of course he does, because we all do. We, we all struggle to talk about things that have happened, especially if they are the bloodier, harder things that have happened. 
But to a wounded, wounded group of women, the angel's first step is to say, you need to see the place where he was. It, it actually happened. Lay your hands on the linen that wrapped up his bloody body. Bloody body. Touch the stone that held him. It's real. Your pain is not a facade. It's, it's not a lie. It's not a fictional story. The Upward Bound folks, they say that if you can't get out of it, you better get into it. That's what the angel is saying in the step one. Do not deny, do not denounce, do not belittle, do not mask. Go into the pain for what it is and let it be your teacher. Feel the weight of it. But that's not all the angel says. The angel doesn't stop right there. The angel says, see the place where he laid. Then go and see the place where he lives. See the place where he laid. Then go and see the place where he lives. Essentially what the angel is saying here, you don't need me to tell you, but I will. Don't let the pain that brought you to the grave keep you from the plans that God has for you in Galilee. Pain is real. Life hurts. Life has hardships. Sabotages happen. The blind sides, they happen. And there is pain that will lead you to a grave with spices in your hands, not sure of how the stone will ever roll away. But don't get stuck in pain while the plan goes forward. The pain that leads you to the grave, don't let it keep you away from the plans that God has for you in Galilee. Where is Galilee? Well, in our story, in this text, as you and I know, Galilee is more than just a geographical location. Galilee is where it all starts. Galilee is where Jesus was formed as a human. It's not the, the pomp in the, the gloss of Jerusalem. It's not, it's not the big powerful place. It's where the common happens. It's where groceries are bought and babies are born. It's where cereal gets spilt. It's where shoes are purchased. It's where driveways are shoveled. It's in the common spaces. And the angel says that go on, leave the grave, and go look for Christ in the common. To be a human being is to hold a vision of valuation, a vision of valuation is to ascribe and attach meaning to our lives in the moments that we enter in and out of. And I think that's a beautiful way to think about faith. Because if we take the words of the angel very seriously, we actually take them on in our lives, the ask is this, you showed up with the pain at the grave, but now go into Galilee with the eyes of faith. Not to expect it all to be miraculously washed clean, figured out, made perfect, but to see where God is still active. To see where the life still lives. To see where the power is still present. The women go there and they find this. And when I thought about this this morning, this changed how I'll always see Easter now. And maybe that's a combination of how I thought about this morning and thought about, I've uh, been thinking just about this last month. Um, Easter has always felt like this catalytic moment, Right? It is finished, electric guitar, take me down to paradise. It's that kind of like triumphant moment. 
the stone has rolled away, he has risen. Like pop the confetti, right? But as I hear this right here, where I hear the angels say, you need to um, see the place where he lived, laid, but also go on and see the place where he still lives. I think of it less as an exclamation mark. Is it an exclamation mark or an exclamation point? Somebody correct me right now. You can see where Sawyer gets his grammar from. Mark, okay. Exclamation mark. And more like one of those ellipses right there. Easter as an ellipsis. Three dots for the three days. Because it represents that decision of where you're actually going to let your story go once you arrive at the grave. Will you stop at the place where your pain has brought you? Or will you go forward trusting that God has still got you? That amidst the sabotage, amidst the upside-down reality that pain often inflicts upon us, there is still a God. And we believe that mountains can still be moved. And we believe that God does not waste our pain. He doesn't let our scars just slip away into nothingness. It all gets recycled in an economy of grace. And we have a good God who's got our back. So will we let the hallowing of life happen? Will we have the courage to show up and be marked by a marking moment, but then move forward into Galilee where God is still on the rise, where life goes forward? The worst thing that can happen, worse than all of the pain, all of the sorrow, all of the heartbreak that we feel in our lives, is not even always the source of the pain, the source of the sorrow, or the source of the heartbreak. It is to be encountered by death and not to be changed by that encounter. It is to go through hardship and not be made more malleable and open. So why Richard Rohr, he says that we don't think ourselves in a new way of living. We live ourselves into a new way of thinking. So here's my challenge for us as we leave this room tonight. Um, we step out into whatever is next for us. I want us to think about how can we actually be a people who have eyes to see where the life still lives? How can we be a people who in times of pain, of heartbreak, where hardship is all around us and surrounding us, or so it feels, how can we be a people who see the grave but then go into Galilee with eyes to see the gifts, with eyes to see where the beauty still lives, to see the resurrection, the places where we can learn how to actually be appreciative of what we have and not just in agony over what we lost? What are the gifts in Galilee? Next weekend, we're going to have a uh, night. It's going to be like a Thanksgiving service. We're going to have, um, we're going to name those gifts. And one of the ways we want to do it, take your phones out right now and take a picture of this because you're going to be taking some pictures this week. We want to do a thing called the gifts in Galilee. And our ask on you all is that throughout the week, you'd be extra sensitive to where God's gifts are laying in your life, and you would snap photos of them. You would then proceed to text those photos to 612-509-9697. We just want to have a moment in the service last next week where we actually pause to reflect on God's grace and how abundant it actually is in our lives, even in these places where we feel like there is nothing but absence. Amen?
I love you guys. I said this last week, but I'll say it again. You know, going through, um, I got to choose my words carefully. I've got babies in the room. Hard times, it's really made me remember just as fragile as life can often feel, how good it is to have a family like this, where we can hold the heaviness together, where we can hold one another up. And um, that's it. I love you guys. Okay? That got weird. Nobody said it back. All right. Okay. Find a new job, Matt. All right. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you, Lord, for being present, God, in this space. Lord, thank you, God, for being faithful still, Lord, even when the fragility of life becomes so real. God, as we learn how to move forward, knowing that we'll never move on, God, as we learn how to allow our wounds to turn into scars, God, as we learn how to be hallowed out so we refuse to settle for a hollow life, God. Lord, give us the courage to still love, the courage to still hope, the courage to still believe that the best is yet to come, the courage to believe that, God, even in this, you are making the world good and beautiful and healthy and whole. Give us eyes to see the gifts in our lives as we go forward into our week. God, we are grateful. And all God's children, we say together, amen.